Offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Saik from our studios at Prashantinilyam. And this is a program where we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse, trying to understand the meaning of each verse. And in fact, I try and give even a word by word meaning. And uh, we go through this entire process as co-companions on this pilgrimage with prayers to Swami and that's what we've been doing. It's been a wonderful journey so far and there is so much to learn and we have got nowhere near the real crux of the Gita, if I could say that. I know it's not right to say that because every aspect and every part of the Bhagavad Gita is very profound and there is so much to learn from. And especially the second chapter is more or less a summary of the entire Bhagavad Gita. But nevertheless, as we go forward to the other chapters, we will be going deeper and deeper into some of the concepts which we have just mentioned in the past couple of weeks in the second chapter. That's what we are going through. We are somewhere, I think, not even midway of the second chapter. There's a long way to go. I am going through these verses very, very slowly because it is not regular knowledge in that sense. This is definitely something which is uh, not easily comprehensible to the human mind. And that's what uh, Krishna says in the verse that we went through the last time. The 25th verse, I'll come to that shortly. But he says that, that this is not easily available to the thinking mind. It is achintya, it is beyond the comprehension of the mind. And that is why this requires that mananam to constantly go over this again and again. More importantly, compare it with experiences that we have already undergoing in day-to-day life and say that this is similar to this and this is how we treat this particular situation in life. Similarly, this is the experience that you're supposed to have when you're talking about the inner self and uh, the idea of reality and maya and all of that. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what is meant to be done through commentaries of the Bhagavad Gita over the many, many years. If you read the commentary of Adi Shankara or contemporaries of Adi Shankara, you would find examples that are relevant to those times. There would be examples of pots and lamps and you know all that which was used in that time, which made sense. But in the modern context, much of our thinking has changed, much of our implements around us have changed. So similarly, the way we approach some of these topics also should have relevant examples and I think that's what we've been trying to do. With Swami's grace, we will do more of that and hopefully in the process, as we always say, we can do the Shravanam, we can do the Mananam, we can only submit to Swami that the Nidhid Dhyasanam happens by His grace. Today, most probably, I'll be doing only two shlokas. I'm again, sorry for being so slow, but I gave you the explanation for that. I hope that's acceptable. The reason is, there is a change of track, so to say, in this particular point when Krishna is trying to explain this concept of why he should not be grieving, right? That is a refrain that we will see over the next few verses, just as we saw in a few verses preceding to this point, where he says, you should not be grieving about all of this. He does not deserve your grief, right? That's something which Krishna is going to keep repeating. But uh, before that, we will, of course, give a short summary. And before I come to the summary, I, I thought I'll let you also know that now there is another way by which you can share your feedback with us and that is by sending your feedback to a WhatsApp number which we have and that's a new addition to the ways by which you can reach out to us and if you have any thoughts and uh, if sending out mails is not your thing then here's a WhatsApp number through which you can send us your feedback and the number is, it's easy to note down but I'll repeat it a couple of times now and probably at the end of the program. The number is 93 93-258-258. So that's the number, that's the WhatsApp number for feedback to any of the programs of Radio Sign, not just this program. That's 93-93-258-258. So if you have any of your thoughts that you would like to pen immediately and send it to us, do send it across in this WhatsApp number. I'm saying this for a specific reason because uh, the other reason why I'm going to take only two shlokas today is I want to mention one very good question that came from a listener. Very, very good question, I should say, because that question shows that the listener is definitely following whatever we are going through and that's so heartening to know. 
I thought I wanted to speak about that question and that doubt might arise in uh, minds of other listeners too. So I thought it's worthwhile to spend a few minutes on that. But that's probably towards the end of the program. For now, we'll start with a short summary of what we covered last time. We went through three verses, verse number 23, 24 and 25. Verse number 23 is a famous and very powerful verse where it says that weapons cannot cut it, nor can fire burn it, nor water wets it, or the wind does not dry it. It's an iconic verse from the Bhagavad Gita which speaks about the self as being beyond the destruction that can be caused by any weapon or any other implement which causes harm to the body. There's a very beautiful incident which I heard and later read about in the life of a devotee of Swami. And this was a lady, I think she was living in the United States at that point in time, I might be wrong. She went through a very, very traumatic experience, a physically traumatic experience at one point in time. And she was saying that she, her faith and surrender in Swami was so very strong at that point that when that particular experience was happening to her, that trauma, she was going through that trauma. She called out to Swami and she said she did not have a sliver of doubt whether Swami would come and help her. She was absolutely sure that now Swami is going to appear here in front of me and save me from this problem. Right? So she said with that amount of faith I called out to Swami and Swami didn't come and she had to undergo that experience. So she was saying that she was so very hurt by that more than the experience itself, the feeling that Swami let her down. Swami did not come when she called out to Swami. So she was experiencing this pain for a very, very long time that Swami had let her down and she trusted Swami and Swami didn't show up when she needed Swami the most. So she was saying that many, many years later that she was sitting in a session of meditation and she was thinking about Swami and she had something like a vision where Swami came and Swami was in front of her. And the moment she saw Swami, all the anger which was there based on this incident came up. And she vented it out on Swami and said, Swami, you didn't come to me. I called out to you with all faith and you did not show up. You did not come to me. You let me down. And very innocently, Swami looks at her and Swami says, why, what happened to you? And she got all the more wild. She said, what do you mean what happened to me, Swami? This is the worst thing that could happen to a person. It happened to me and, you know, all of this situation and I had to go through that trauma and all that. And Swami again very innocently repeats, why, what happened to you? And she lost it. She completely lost her temper and in that vision conversation that she was having with Swami. So she burst out aloud and said, Swami, how can you be so heartless and how can you speak like this? And she repeats the whole thing again. And, and the third time Swami asks the same question, but with a little bit of emphasis, he says, what happened to you? And when Swami says that, it hits her like a ton of bricks. That this real me, which Swami is referring to when he says what happened to you, nothing can touch it, nothing can affect it, right? And uh, this devotee recalls, the first thing that comes to our mind is this particular shloka from the Bhagavad Gita where it says, Nainam Chindanti Shastrani. He says the weapons cannot kill it, the fire cannot burn it. And she says, oh my God, I am that real self which cannot be harmed by any bad experience the body undergoes. And it comes like a flash of enlightenment to her and she says that the whole concept of the Dehi and the soul and the body suddenly springs up to life in her mind because of that experience that she had and because of this conversation that she had with Swami. And that's why that shloka is so powerful that when we know that we are that which cannot be harmed by anything, right? And as we saw, the inner meaning of that shloka is that anything that belongs to the worldly plane which is unreal, cannot cause any form of harm to the real self. Just like how when I'm dreaming and in, in my dream, if I see a fire, the fire in my dream cannot burn down my real house or cannot burn my real body, right? Similarly, the fire in this world or this worldly plane cannot burn the real me, which is the Dehi, right? That is the import of that particular shloka, that that which is unreal in no way can form any impact or create any impact or create any harm on that which is real. And this particular theme is again reiterated by Krishna in the next verse where Krishna says, none of the five elements can harm the real self. And especially when we talk about the element of space, 
when we say that space cannot affect the real self it means that space cannot break the continuity of the self or it cannot cause the self to be split and it essentially means that the self becomes all encompassing and that is why it is referred to as sarvagataha it is omnipresent because space cannot break its continuity and it does not have it encompasses everything in the world and verse number 25 is a summation of all that was said and krishna finally says you know this is the nature of the self i've described it all to you in all of these different words as we have been going through in the past couple of two or three weeks the different words which he uses to describe the self saying that it is unborn it, it does not die it is shashvatah it is nitya it is uh, avyayah it cannot be affected and all of these descriptions krishna gives and finally in the verse number 25 krishna says all this we know from the scriptures you have studied all of this this is all part of your syllabus in your gurukula you've studied all of this from the vedas so when we recognize the self to be thus you should not be grieving right that's what krishna says it's almost like a summary of whatever krishna has been trying to explain till this point in time and that's why we stopped that was verse number 25 so we'll continue from there we'll listen to verse number 26 as always in the voice of brother sham who has very beautifully rendered it for us after that i'll give you a brief meaning of that particular verse and then we will discuss a little more deeply on the meaning of that verse अथ चैनमसे मृत तथा महाबाहो नैवंशोचिमर्हसी even then o mighty armed one you ought not to grieve thus that's the meaning of verse number 26 of the second chapter till the previous shloka as i was just telling you in that summary that i gave before i played the shloka krishna was explaining the point the whole argument was being placed from the point of view of the dehi or the indweller of the deha saying that it has no birth it has no death na jayate mrateva that's what one verse which we came across it is eternal it is changeless nitya shashvatah ayam and the whole argument was based on the truth that we are not this body but we are the indweller which has all of these qualities and as i mentioned earlier swami has very beautifully given the role or the argument the role of the argument that krishna places in these particular verses he says that in the second chapter till verse number 30 krishna is crushing the delusion that we are the body and because we are not the body there is no reason for us to worry and that's how the previous verse ends as a summary as i said the verse number 25 he says evam viditva yenam na anushochitam arhasi having understood the nature of the self to be all this you ought not to grieve right but in this particular verse krishna gives a completely different argument and very very beautiful argument if you ask me krishna says okay let's say you don't agree with what i have said so far let's say that you think that you are the body and you are not the dehi you don't have a soul you don't have the soul which has all of these qualities you believe that you are the body that's what krishna says he says atha on the contrary manyase if you think yenam nitya jatam it is constantly born nityam va amritam and constantly dies tathapi even then na evam shochitum arhasi you should not be grieving like this so krishna is saying if you think that you are not the indweller if you think that you die with the body in other words meaning that if you think that you are the body right you completely identify with the body krishna says even if you think thus that you are the body and you perish with the body you were born with the body and you undergo change with the body even then you are not supposed to be grieving like this there's no sense in that that's what krishna says in fact uh, among the many schools of philosophy in hinduism there is one school of philosophy which is called the charvarka philosophy or 
the philosophy of materialism called chadvarka it is also called lokayata right the believers of this particular philosophy one of the main differentiating factors of this school of philosophy from the other vedantic schools like advaita or sankhya vaisheshika and all of them is the charvaka philosophers they do not subscribe to anything that cannot be seen directly so if you tell them that you know the body has a soul the soul travels from body to body they say i cannot see it i won't believe it if you talk about heaven and hell if you talk about sin and merit they will say these are all things that we cannot see directly you know in our experience so we will not believe all of these things so when they believe in such a manner they believe that we are the body right there is no dehi there is no indweller there is no atma there is no soul what we can see is the body so who are we we are the body right that is the philosophy they believe in and interestingly when we talk about the schools of hinduism when we talk about vedantic schools when we talk about the indian culture itself this particular philosophy is actually not discussed at all because over the period of time we have found this to be a very shallow philosophy and we have dropped it or it has literally lost its relevance in spiritual discourse that's why we don't hear this word charvaka as much as we hear the other schools of philosophy of sankhya and all of that right but very interestingly much of what is said in this particular philosophy is being followed in the modern life that we all are living even though the philosophy as such has lost its cause and we don't talk about it much if you look at it as i said this philosophy does not believe in the fact that there is a soul so it does not believe in the idea that after death there is another birth it does not believe that there is heaven and hell we see only the body so you are the body i am the body and when this body perishes i perish you perish in the modern context there is this philosophy that we often talk about youngsters will be very familiar with it we call it yolo y o l o which means you only live once the whole idea of that yolo concept is look you're going to live only once so make as much merry as you want have as much fun and fill your life with pleasures because this is the only chance that you have and those who believe in this yolo philosophy try to extend their youth as much as possible try to live like teenagers even when they are 40 50 this is precisely what charvaka philosophy is about we have completely dropped the philosophy saying that it is shallow but we've adopted everything that it stands for in our day to day life in fact another example that i can give is you know there is this one particular verse which literally typifies what the charvaka philosophy is all about it says that if you have to borrow and eat ghee then you should do that right i don't know the exact verse how it goes in sanskrit but it goes that you know borrow money and eat ghee the uh, context of that is eating ghee is supposed to be a luxurious thing to do it's a luxury that people who have a lot of money indulge in that's how we always think of it as so the charaka philosophy is look you're going to live only once so even if you have to borrow somebody's money even if you're not able to repay that money even you know if you have to live on debt and enjoy the pleasures of life go ahead and do that right that's one of the things that uh, they say and if you look at it isn't that exactly what we do in the modern world everything is bought with a credit card we take a home loan and we enjoy the luxuries of a home we use the credit card we buy the latest gadgets even before we can afford it we take a car loan we enjoy a luxury of a car so though this charvaka philosophy has been accepted as being shallow and a very ignorant approach to life we have completely adopted that approach in our life in the modern day context in fact the other approach of the charvaka philosophy is so because we don't see the heaven and uh, hell we don't subscribe to that idea and because and when you don't subscribe to the idea of heaven and hell you don't subscribe to the idea of sin and merit so when you don't subscribe to the idea of sin and merit you look around you find some people are happy you find that some people are suffering some people are having problems but some people are you know there is no correlation between a person who is good having a good life and person who is bad suffering nothing like that you find bad people flourishing you feel good people struggling so what do they say there is nothing but randomness in all of this so you go out there do what it takes to have pleasure in life do what it takes to avoid pain and that's why they say you borrow and you make fun and that's exactly what we are doing right so krishna is saying look coming back to where we started from sene yor bhayor madhye between the two armies 
Krishna and Arjuna are standing. Krishna is telling, All right, Arjuna, if you come to me and say, Look, I don't believe in all of this. I am a Charvarka. Even if you say that, of course, Krishna doesn't use that terminology. But what Krishna says is that if you think that you die and you are born, if you think that you come and you go, if you think that you are Anityaha, if you think that you are not Shashvataha, you are not all of these descriptions I have given, Krishna is saying, Okay, don't believe in all of this. Even then, Arjuna, there is no reason to be sad and there is no reason to lament. Why is Krishna saying that? What is the argument at this point when Krishna is saying that you cannot lament even if you are not a spiritual person? I think I had made a mention of this a couple of weeks back where I said, there is no point in grieving over the Sat, but there is no point in grieving over the Asat also. That's what Krishna is saying. Even if you think that this is Asat, you should not be lamenting and grieving. And the explanation for that, Krishna will give in the next verse. So we'll listen to that, verse number 27. And after that, we'll discuss about that. Chātasya hidhruvo mṛtyuhu Dhruvam janma mṛtasya ca Tasmāda parihār yerthe Natvam shochitu marhasi For Death of anyone born is certain, and for the dead, birth is certain. Therefore, you ought not to grieve over an inevitable fact. So why is it wrong or why is it not worth grieving over? It is meaningless to cry over something that is inevitable. There are a lot of things that we purchase in real life, we go out and buy, we use. When we know that the nature of that object is to perish, why would we moan over it? We all know that milk gets spoiled. We all know that food goes bad if kept out for long. We know that flowers fade. We don't grieve over these things when it happens because we know that that's the nature of that object, isn't it? We make use of them before that. We adopt a very pragmatic approach towards them, saying that this is the lifetime of this particular object. This will get spoiled this will perish over a period of time or this will undergo a change after which it is useless to me. And we take a very practical approach to that and say that let's make best use of it when we can use it, right? That's what we do. In the same way, Krishna is saying here, Jatasya hi dhruvo mrityuhu. For the one who is born, death is a certainty. Dhruvam janma mrityasya cha. And rebirth is a certainty for one who dies. And this is an ongoing process. Where is the need for grieving? That's what Krishna is asking. Tasma, therefore, apariharya arthe. Krishna says, apariharye arthe. Pariharya means something which can be remedied by our action. Something that we can act in, something we can avoid, right? Something is going to happen. Pariharya. This is a word which we often use in uh, some of the Indian languages. Parihara means something is going to happen, something bad is going to happen or something unpleasant is going to happen. Something that we can do to avoid it or to soften the blow of that particular bad even from happening. That's what we call pariharam, right? So pariharya means something that can be remedied by our action. Apariharya means that cannot be remedied by whatever we do, which means it is inevitable. Nothing that you and I do is going to stop this thing from happening. That is what apariharya means. So he says, apariharye arthe, for the sake of that which cannot be avoided, na tvam shochitum arhasi, you ought not to grieve in this manner. There are two things that are important in this particular verse. One is, death is inevitable. That we'll come to, we'll talk about that in detail. And the other is, what dies is born again. See, as Krishna said, either you think of yourself as the Dehi or the indweller, then you only change body like you change a shirt, right? If you think you are the body, which means if you think that you are the shirt, you're not changing the shirt, you are the shirt, then every shirt comes with a guarantee, isn't it? And we know it, at the time of buying the shopkeeper, no shopkeeper is going to give you a shirt or a clothing or a sari, or a salwar kameez, or a coat, or a shirt, or a trouser, or whatever it is, and say that, look, this is eternal, nothing is going to happen to this particular fabric. 
I don't think anybody is going to say that, right? Everybody says that, look, this is the thing and this is the material it's made of and this is the lifetime that is predicted, right? So when we buy the object, we know that this is going to expire over a period of time. So there is no surprise there that we should be shocked. And that's precisely what Krishna is saying here. Similarly, you know that this is inevitable. You know that this is going to perish. If you think that you are the body, then you know that the body perishes. Then why do you show so much surprise and grieve over it when it happens? And if you think about it deeply, it is really intriguing, isn't it? We all know that death is inevitable. But then why do we get so shocked? Why do we get so disturbed and rocked when it happens? Especially to somebody who is very dear to us. There's this particular story which is very profound. Most of you must have heard it. Where there is this mother who has lost a young child. And you can understand the grief the mother is going through. And she's refusing to cremate the body of the child. Because she says that you know there will be some Mahatma who will be able to breathe life back into this body so I will not give up the body of my child. So everybody in the village start getting worried about this mother because this is going to be a health issue for the mother and the others in the village. So they go to a very wise person, a monk who is there in the outskirts of the village in the forest. They go to him and say that this is what is happening. This lady is crying like this. So the monk tells the villagers, you bring her to me, tell her that I will give life to that child. So let her bring the body of that child of hers and let her come to me. So the information is passed on to the mother. The mother is delighted that this is going to happen. So she brings the corpse of her son and she comes before this great monk. And uh, she says, Oh master, will you be able to bring life back into my son? And the master very nonchalantly says that, Yes, I can. I will be able to do that. But I need some things for that. So the mother says, I will do anything, whatever you ask for it, whatever is required for that, you tell me, however difficult it is, I will get it. So the monk tells the mother that all you have to do is get some mustard seeds from any house where there has been no death at all. So go to anybody's house where there has been no death in the house and you bring a few mustard seeds. If you get me that, I will be able to revive your son. So the mother rushes to the village. She goes door to door asking everybody, can you give me some mustard seeds? Has there been a death in your body? And everybody in the village says, oh, you know, my grandfather passed away just a month ago. My husband passed away some time back. And everyone has had some death happening in the family, either in the recent past or probably in a year or two, sometime around that time. So she goes from house to house, every village, and then she goes to the neighboring village and every household says that we have had a death. And by the time the mother goes through this whole process, she realizes why the monk made her do this. She realizes that the monk is trying to drive this message that death is an inevitable thing. It happens in everybody's family. Anybody that is born has to die one day and it's an inevitability that one has to accept. It is. As Krishna was saying, it is apariharya, right? Apariharya. It, it cannot be remedied by any action that we can perform. So the mother comes back to the monk and she prostrates in front of the monk. She says, I have understood the lesson that you are trying to teach me. And thereafter, the monk consoles the mother and tells her that, you know, I don't know what was the discourse that he gave her, but he says that you understand, don't get too worried about it. You perform the rites for the body of your son and carry on with your life, right? So it, it is so very surprising that we see that every day, but we come across that every day, but when it happens, it unsettles us. Another story which speaks about this nature of human beings, which is so intriguing, is that very famous story of the conversation between the Yaksha and Yudhishthira in the same Mahabharata, right? And not going into the details, where uh, this particular section of the Mahabharata, which is called Yaksha Prashna, in case any of our listeners are not very familiar with that, I think you can Google Yaksha Prashna. It's a conversation between this celestial being and Yudhishthira, who's the elder Pandava, right? Where this Yaksha puts forth many questions to Yudhishthira and Yudhishthira replies to all of those questions. In fact, most of those questions are very cryptic and the answers that Yudhishthira gives are also cryptic because in popular literature, they have simplified it and they've kind of given the crux of that conversation. One of the questions that uh, Yudhishthira has asked 
by the Yaksha in that particular section of the Mahabharata is Kim Ascharyam. He says, what is the most surprising thing in the world? Kim Ascharyam. And the reply that Yudhishthira gives is beautiful. He says, Ahanyahani Bhutani Gachanti Yamamandiram Shesha Jeevitumichanti Kim Ascharyamataha Param He says, Ahanyahani Bhutani Ahanyahani means every day, day after day, Bhutani Gachanti Yamamandiram Beings are going to the realm of Yama, the Lord of Death, which means they are dying. Ahanyahani Bhutani Gachanti Yamamandiram Shesha, the remaining of those people, Jeevitum Michanti, still desire to keep living. Kimascharya Matahaparam, what is more surprising than this? As I said, these are all very cryptic questions and answers when the Yaksha asks, what is the most surprising? Yudhishthira says, we see this death happening day in and day out, right? But still, the people who are seeing this happening desire to keep living. In other words, they desire to keep living for themselves and for those people who are dear to them, right? If you just look around, you know, a person may become lucky, may become unlucky. A person may become rich, may become a millionaire, may become a pauper. Somebody may get married, may not get married, may have children, may not have children, may have a long life and, or may have a short-lived life. All of these things, none of these things are guaranteed. right? There is no guarantee for any of these things. You cannot look at a person and say that all of these things will happen in your life. right? I mean, if you come to think of it, there are so many people who go through Swami's universities, right, institutions. We can't even look at that person who has had this greatest good fortune of having gone through an educational system which is being monitored by the avatar of the age himself. We cannot look at that person and say that, oh, this person is going to be a very, very good person at the end of 20 years. Even that guarantee we cannot give. Nothing is guaranteed in life. Whether you will be rich, you will be poor, whether you will achieve something, you will not achieve something, whether you will become famous or you are going to die unknown to everybody. Nothing is certain. The only thing which is absolutely certain about life is death. But still, when it happens, we feel shocked, we are surprised and we start grieving over it. right? And that's what Yudhishthira is saying. This is Ascharyam. We know that this is the inevitability of life, but it, when it happens... We are surprised as though, oh God, why did this happen? As though we think that we are going to be living forever and the person who died was also going to live forever. Okay, So when I think that I am this body, death is inevitable. But when I am the body, how is this particular part of the shloka which Krishna is saying, dhruvam janma mrityasyacha, right? which means that which dies is reborn all the time. We talked about the Charvarka philosophy. They do not believe in rebirth at all, right? They say that once you die, you die. There is no question of you coming back in another body. But Krishna says that even if you believe that you are not the indweller, but you are the body, he says that which is born is bound to die and that which is dead is bound to be reborn again. What is the meaning of this? If you look at it scientifically, you look at the human body, you know, Typical adult human body, it'll be really a surprising thing, this particular fact. Every day, we shed about 50 to 70 billion cells from the human body. Every day, 50 to 70 billion cells die every day and we discard it from our body in the form of, you know, when we have bath or when we answer nature's call, when we brush our teeth, all of these processes, in fact, uh, when we sweep our house, they say the dust that mostly collects are all dead cells which come from our external layer of our uh, skins. So about 50 to 70 billion cells die every day and 50 to 70 billion cells are born every day. Right? And that's why the adult body is it's in a state of equilibrium. That many cells are dead and that many cells are regenerated again in the body. Right? So for every old cell that is discarded, a new cell is formed. So to say, it might not be one is to one, but you get the idea. Do we cry over every cell that dies? Do we cry over 
every morning imagine what a scene it would be if you wake up every morning and say that oh my god i lost 50 billion cells of my body this happens every day and this is life this is the reality of life we don't cry over it purely because it's insignificant when we look at human existence right when we look at this whole body even though we are the number seems so large 50 to billion cells it is extremely small compared to this human body and it does not harm our existence right it does not even call for our attention we go through life it's happening every day in our life and we don't even think about it right because it is too short lived to bother us and it is too insignificant in the human life in the context in which we are operating to be bothered about that now if you look at the the larger picture look at this human birth or human life it is merely 70 to 100 years that's an extremely small period of time when you consider forget about eternity even when you consider the age of the earth or the age of the galaxy that we are living in or the cosmology that we study it's so very insignificant 70 to 100 years it's typically like the age of your the cells of the body that we discard compared to the age of the human body itself similarly 70 to 100 years you know this very very beautiful chart where what they've done is imagine that the big bang happens at the stroke of midnight on the 1st of jan right when we celebrate the new year's day which is coming on the stroke of 12 we celebrate new year imagine the big bang happens at 12 am on 1st january and imagine the current moment that we are all living in history whatever it is 2018 right this moment is the last second of the entire year which means 31st december 11:59 pm 59 seconds right that is the present moment if we were to compress entire history as we know it from big bang to the present moment because uh, let's start with big bang let's not get into the discussion of whether that is the beginning of creation let's say from the point of big bang which we know which is i think about 13.7 billion years ago right so from the point of big bang let it be at the stroke of 12 jan and right now the moment is the last second of the year which is on 31st of december if we were to compress the entire history in this you would be really surprised the human species the homo sapiens come into the picture in the last 30 minutes of that entire year can you imagine the last 30 minutes is when the human species comes into existence which means all of those prehistoric men roaming around the uh, continents of africa and central asia and your idea of the harappan culture and egyptian civilization mayan civilization your entire the anglo-saxon history the aborigines and natives and your industrial revolution your world wars when you speak about india all of your moguls and everybody comes into that last 30 minutes of this entire year imagine how insignificant our 100 years in that is it's so very insignificant even when we look at it from this point of view right so just like how those cells in our body are discarded and it does not hurt us at all because it's so insignificant compared to this the life of this body similarly the life of this body is so insignificant when you look at it from the point of view of the entire cosmos right and of course in all of this backdrop if we think that we are actually ajataha and anantaha which means we are not born and we are eternal imagine what foolishness it is to think that we are this body we are this ego which is oh i am a ceo or i am a radio jockey or whatever it is or i am a doctor or i am a president in my company so insignificant you imagine the enormity of who you really are whatever krishna has been explaining in the second chapter and what stupidity it would be to think that you are this body but of course that's a different argument because right now we are thinking that we believe that we are the body right that's the argument krishna is giving so imagine the insignificance of this human body in that picture the reason i'm saying this is there's a very interesting thing which uh, professor venkatraman would often say that when this big bang happened i'll not go into the details of how it happened and what happens few moments after the big bang i'm not even qualified to speak about that but he says in the few moments that followed the big bang is when most of the minerals and the elements as we know it in our science 
were formed in that heat and in that expansion is when all of these elements and minerals are formed right and these start expanding and some of these preliminary material become the stars some of them become the planets and some of them become eventually minerals on these planets and those minerals have become our body right so he would say that you know look if you look at it you are that stardust which came from the big bang theory it's the same mineral and if you look at it even from the scientific point of view none of these minerals actually perish they just keep changing they go back to their atomic forms and they and they start reforming again and take a different form right so if we think that we are this body and not the soul that wears the body even then this particular statement that krishna is making dhruvam janma mrityasya birth after death is sure holds good why if i think i am this body this physical body scientifically the atoms that constitute this body probably never get destroyed they only change in nature what was the stardust has become a mineral and what was a mineral has become this body and this body after death will again become a mineral and it will enter a plant and when another human being eats the plant or eats an animal that eats the plant this mineral would have again become part of the human body right so even if you think that one is the body what krishna told in the 13th verse still holds good he had said dehino asmin yatha dehe kaumaram yavvanam jara yatha dehantara praptihi dhiraha tatrana muhyati just as this body the dehi passes into childhood youth and old age so also does it pass into another body the wise do not get deluded the only difference is krishna spoke of the dehi at that point because he said if you think of the indweller who wears this body but we can say that even if you think that you are the body because just as this body is undergoing this change that we refer to as growth right you look at it we were baby which was 2 kgs 3 kgs 4 kgs right that's what is the weight of a baby that's just born and today we are anywhere between 50 and 80 to 90 or 100 kgs where did all this mass come from this mass which is almost 10 to 12 times the weight of what we were born is nothing but what has accumulated in this body from the external environment right so the minerals the vitamins and whatever the plants are they have become this human body so even if i say that i am the body you are actually saying that all of these minerals which were part of this environment have now become part of me and i am this mineral right and this is as professor venkatraman would say is essentially from the same stardust which came out when the big bang happened 13.7 billion years ago and if you look at it look at it from the point of view of the mineral or of that atomic component which eventually becomes this human body it has been changing forms for 13.7 billion years it has been you know from the big bang it has become a planet and maybe it has become a star again and maybe it has come and landed on the earth and it has become a human body and it is going to remain this human body for just those 70 to 100 years look at it from the point of view of that mineral this human existence is absolutely insignificant for that mineral in fact it's better to speak to life to that mineral because it has seen much much more than the human body has right so that's what krishna is saying that you know, today you are this body and tomorrow when you die what will happen the mineral will return to its state what it was before the body was constituted and eventually it is going to be a part of another body right so even if you think that you are the body even if you negate the concept of there being a soul and we're talking about the soul and all of that krishna is saying there is no reason you should be worried because this is nothing but what we refer to as dehantara prapti the change of the human body in you know the same minerals are just forming today they are the human body tomorrow they'll be a rock day after tomorrow they'll be a plant and then eventually they'll become another human body so this what constitutes the material body is only undergoing that what we refer to as dehantara prapti so why grieve arjuna na shochitum arhasi it does not deserve to be grieved over so whether you think you are the deha or dehi there is no scope for grief at all when we talk of this particular concept and we've been referring to in essence what we are doing is we are 
trivializing and underplaying death right so this question might arise in the people in the mind of listeners or the people who read this it uh, it arises in my mind the whole idea of human rights is based on the fundamental right of right to live right because we treat human life with such utmost importance we speak of it as the most important thing that's why the most fundamental of rights is the right to live and if you look at scriptures of all religions of all lands they always speak of if you take the life of another person it's a cardinal sin right because to stop somebody from living or to cause the death of another person is the greatest sin a person can do and the reason why we say that is we give utmost importance to life in other words we do whatever it takes to stop death from happening because we consider we give so much importance to death right in fact even if you go back to the dharma shastras like manusmriti and vidura niti they have this concept that you're always supposed to follow what we call as uh, we are always supposed to be dharmic and follow dharma but there is something called an apadharma probably we'll speak of it as we go through the bhagavad gita again the apadharma literally translates into the moral code during emergency situations right and it says that when the question of life and death comes when it comes to the point of saving somebody's life or saving your own life some of these moral codes actually undergo a change the dharma shastras themselves say that it's important to save life so all of what we refer to as the human culture or what we refer to as jurisprudence what we refer to as the civilization all of that is based on the importance we give to human life and our focus is on avoiding death right so when we say that death is so insignificant and you know, don't worry about death and death always happens and don't treat it like you have bath and your cells get washed away treat death like that this is a very very dangerous thing to say and we have seen in the recent history or you know in the limited history that we all have been witness to regimes and leaders and leaders of countries national heads who have adopted this kind of thinking that human life is not precious enough have created such havoc in society right and we look at them as monsters literally in that sense so when we say that we have to trivialize human birth and we should not get too perturbed about death isn't it a dangerous thing to say isn't it a dangerous information to be given and that is why it again goes back to what we spoke about in detail sometime back that one has to be good by nature one has to be selfless by nature one has to be guileless by nature one should not have this idea that i can hurt another person and i can gain from that that is the basis of any idea or any wisdom which is of a higher nature right as i've said before krishna is teaching pragnana the supreme wisdom to arjuna and the basis for pragnana is that one has to be a good person otherwise imagine if this entire discourse was being given to duryodhana and duryodhana would have been very happy with this discourse okay doesn't matter how many people i kill as long as i get what i want right the very idea that all of this is being given to arjuna is because arjuna is by nature a good person so all of what we talk of as advaita all of the higher wisdom and all of philosophy is based on basic goodness is based on basic compassion without that none of this wisdom is going to be of any use right the reason is when we talk about sorrow and grief these are all universal concepts it does not look at a good person and bad person and come it comes to everybody swami says everybody is going to undergo grief in fact duryodhana himself is undergoing grief for no reason no mistake of his he just happened to be born to a father who was blind and he's being denied the kingdom he's being put through grief but the way duryodhana responded was different he said I mean, you are giving me grief. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be unfortunate. So I will do whatever it takes to turn my fortunes in my favor. Right? That's precisely what Duryodhana is doing. But when we talk about a good person undergoing suffering, right? You have decided to lead a good life. You have decided to lead a dharmic life. Just by virtue of being a good person, it does not mean that grief is not going to come to you. Grief will come to you. but all of these explanations which krishna is giving so beautifully is a tool to ensure that you 
go through this period of grief and with that sense of detachment so that you know if there is a eventuality of a death in the family or if you lose a dear one i mean you still have to get on with life doing the right things at the right time and all of these things when we do mananam with when we constantly roll in our mind it gives us the mental strength and the forbearance to go through that and that's precisely what krishna had told in uh, one of the verses he says sukha dukkadaha agama payinaha anityaha tam titikshasva things that cause happiness and sorrow keep coming and going agama payinaha they are not eternal anityaha tam titikshasva so you must learn to tolerate them and all these explanations that krishna has been giving are means by which we can forbear the grief and continue to do what is right and continue to do what is meant to do and that is what is krishna trying to tell arjuna that all of these explanations is so that arjuna's grief is taken care of and that's why that refrain is so constant anushochitam bharata he says no you should not be grieving you should not be morose like this because there is no reason for you to grieve so in general we can say that you know we need this balance between that empathy that is driven by goodness and compassion and at the same time the detachment that is born from such wisdom we should be a dhiraha as krishna said but at the same time at the core of the heart there should be that compassion there should be the ability to relate to the other person's pain in fact uh, there is one of the writers who writes about the nature of the devotee radha right when he writes about her she because of her merger with krishna in the sense of she is constantly thinking of krishna she loses that identity with herself she is no more grieving that krishna is far away from her as swami has also said she actually was not missing krishna at all because she was constantly living in the presence of krishna so there was no reason for her to grieve in that sense because she did not feel that she was distant from krishna but all the time when we represent the devotee radha as somebody who is crying who is grieving what she was doing was she was reflecting the pain and the grief of the other gopikas who did not have as much wisdom as she did so in one end she was completely merged in krishna she was in that wisdom that she and krishna were one and the same but the grief that she expressed for the world to see was nothing but a reflection of that empathy that she had for the pain the other gopikas were suffering and that is the balance that we have to strike and there is no better example for that than swami now if you think of it day after day day after day for so many years you know mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and children have sat in front of swami and they've poured out their woes about somebody is dying and somebody is unwell and something has happened and this thing has happened you know all of that thing i told about the insignificance of one human life in the cosmic scale if there was somebody who can really see it from that point of view it was swami and imagine swami was sitting there in the interview room and when you're telling him all of these problems which are so insignificant swami knows you swami is probably looking at you as that nityaha shashvataha whatever krishna has been describing the soul as but still it, it did not stop swami from showing compassion to us it did not stop swami from emoting along with us and that should be our balance the goal of our endeavor we should be striving for that balance where internally we are absolutely firm in this wisdom which krishna has been speaking about that mananam should constantly be there and that should result in detachment and on the other hand that compassion that heart should melt when somebody is in pain when we see somebody suffering our heart should melt so that balance it's easy to speak about i spoke about it in 5 minutes but it takes lifetimes to cultivate and i think when that perfect balance is reached that's when there is no difference between us and swami just like how there was no difference between radha and krishna but this is something that we have to keep in mind all of these explanation is not to empower us to do more bad it is to empower us to continue to do good even when we face obstacles in our path even when sorrow is coming because pain and sorrow is part of life as swami would say this is only so that that titiksha or that forbearance can be attained when we constantly think of this so that was uh, verse number 27 as i said uh, i was going to go through only two verses this time i'll quickly 
mentioned that particular question that had come, and this was from one of our very regular listeners, Doctor Yashu from Australia, and uh, this is the question that she wrote to us. She says, in Shloka number nineteen of chapter two, the doership and enjoyership is talked about. As you clearly explained, we the Atma neither kills nor gets killed. Atma does not act. Nor can it be subject to another's action. My doubt is, we say, we are not the doer, but Swami is the doer. So in this case, are we referring to the doer as the sentience that is needed to do the action, that than the action itself? That's the question she asks. I'll repeat that. So in this case, are we referring to the doer as the sentience? That is needed to do the action than the action itself. I think I've got lost somewhere. Can you please help me and clarify? That's the mail that she had sent. It's a very very important question because, you know, when we do seva or when we give a talk, I mean, I have this habit whenever I give a talk, I say that Swami, please remind me that I am not the speaker, that you are the speaker. People who are sitting in front of me, they are not the listeners. You are the listeners, which means we are saying that I am not the doer. Or when we do seva, we say, "No, Swami, you are the doer. I'm just an instrument, right?" So at that point, we are saying that Swami or the Atma is the doer. But in verse 19 of chapter two, as I explained, when uh, Krishna says that the self does not kill or get killed, I explained it as the introduction of the concept of doership and enjoyership. So on one hand, Krishna is saying that the Atma is not the doer, but in Regular usage, we constantly say that Swami is the doer. I am not the doer. So, is the Atma the doer or not the doer? And very rightly, the questioner herself has pointed out that we are referring to sentience when we say that Swami is the speaker or Swami is the doer. And uh, there's this very beautiful explanation that I came across, which is very interesting. I don't know whose example it is, but I'll tell it nevertheless. So, the explanation is this: you know, there is this lamp in front of you. The fire is burning. And let's say I put my finger in that fire, right? It is right for me to say the fire burnt my finger. Now, if I were to go and ask that fire, "Why did you burn my finger?" That fire will say, "I did not burn your finger. You put your finger into me, and you got burnt, right?" The fire will say, "I did not burn you." Means the fire did not have the desire or the wish to do the act of burning my finger. It was continuing to do what it always does. The nature of fire is to burn, but when I put my finger into the fire, it continues to do what it was doing. The result that I experience is that it burnt my finger. Similarly, when we talk about Swami being the doer of all our actions, Swami being the speaker of all our words, we are referring to the sentience that the Atma provides for any activity to be done. And when we say that the Atma is not the doer, when we say the Atma. Neither kills nor gets killed. It's not the doer. It's not the enjoyer. We say that the atma does not have the desire to do anything, or does not feel incompleteness to act, because that's what we had uh, seen in one of the verses. The atma is complete and self-sufficient; that it does not have the need to act, and that is why it is not the doer. So, when we talk of Swami as the doer of all our actions, we are referring to the sentience of the self. When we say that self is not the doer, like in chapter two, verse nineteen, we are referring to the perfectness of the self or the self-sufficiency of the self, because of which the self does not choose to act or does not choose to enjoy. It just continues to exist and do its nature. I hope I've made that point clear. In case you have any questions, feel free to write to me, and or like this, if you have any other question, feel free to write to me. Or you can, as always, as I just mentioned before the program, you can now send us your feedback through the WhatsApp number, and the number is ninety three ninety three two fifty eight two fifty eight. I'll repeat it: the WhatsApp number to which you can send us your feedback is ninety three ninety three two fifty eight two fifty eight. But as always, you can still continue to send us your feedback through the feedback email listener at radioside.org, or of course, you can contact me directly. Also, you're welcome to do that. So that's. Wraps for this week's program. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining me on this pilgrimage. We'll resume the pilgrimage next week. I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's lotus feet, and as always, I express my deepest sense of gratitude 
to Swami for giving me this opportunity and to all of you for joining me on this journey. I'll meet you all again next week. Till then, take care. Happy listening.